One of the most important things that a lot of entrepreneurs don't know or understand is perseverance and riding the roller coaster. And that is you wake up one day and you go into the office and you're having the best day possible. And at noon, you get a phone call and you say, oh my gosh, I'm out of business. That I think is one of the most important things that determines success is the ability to ride the wave up and down and get through it and not lose your mind. That was Susan Bratton, a former Wall Street investment banker of 20 years and the founder of Saver Health, which is a personalized nutrition solution for cancer patients. It's an incredible story, and I can't wait to share this conversation with you. See, I traveled to New York City to meet with Susan, where she was joined by her mentor, Stryker Warren, who's a serial healthcare tech entrepreneur and investor. I met Stryker through Powder Keg and the events that we host. He's been an amazing advisor to many of the stars we had on the Powder Keg stage. And we were so lucky to include Stryker's insights in this interview because he's the former founder and CEO of numerous healthcare technology companies, of which many had successful exits, including acquisitions by United Healthcare, Humana, and Walgreens. No small feat. Because of his remarkable track record, Stryker now advises and invests in talented health tech founders like Susan. And thanks to their combined years of experience in healthcare, Susan and Stryker give me an insider's guide to overcoming operational and financial constraints in building high-tech companies in regulated industries like healthcare. In this conversation, we're going to get into why and how the healthcare industry is evolving, team building techniques, market research strategies, and so much more, including some really cool insight into the New York startup scene, as well as Nashville, Tennessee's startup community, which is where Stryker founded and grew his healthcare tech startups, and where he now mentors through Vanderbilt University, the Nashville Entrepreneur Center, and even invests in them as an angel investor and through the Nashville Capital Network. I hope you love this conversation as much as I do. Let's set this thing off. Susan, what does Saver Health do? Sure. So Saver Health is a disease-specific nutrition platform that leverages technology, deep domain expertise, and credentialed professionals to provide personalized and practical nutrition solutions to cancer patients, their caregivers, and healthcare enterprises like pharmaceutical companies. So personalized nutrition solutions, what does that mean exactly? How, so, how, how does that, I'm a customer of Saver Health, how does that show up to me. So the way it works with you is you come to Saber Health and you know that we're the trusted cancer nutrition experts. And in order to personalize for your specific condition, we're going to ask you some questions. So the user experience is asking questions in an online format. What's your diagnosis? What are your comorbid conditions? What drugs are you on? What do you like to eat? What are your food allergies? And most importantly, what are your side effects? And then based on that and our deep domain expertise in oncology and nutrition, we will actually recommend a nutrition solution that's the best needed to help you manage your side effects and to meet your nutritional and caloric needs. That could be recipes that are customized to your needs. It could be home-delivered meals. It could even be a nutritional counseling session with an oncology credentialed registered dietitian. So it really depends on what the situation uh, of the patient is, both medically and also at home. It's really important to know, do they have support at home? Can they cook for themselves or do they need help with that? Well, so, so it sounds like you have deep domain expertise in this. Um, can you talk me through the genesis of the idea for this? It seems like such a huge unmet need. Sure. So um, the idea came when a dear friend of mine was diagnosed with a brain tumor and he had terrible nutritional issues and was told that nutrition didn't matter and to eat whatever he wanted. 
And that struck me as odd, but as a healthcare banker, I knew that evidence-based literature is how we practice medicine. So I went to the evidence, and I found that, in fact, nutrition does matter. And it's a pervasive problem. So up to 80% of cancer patients experience nutritional issues. Malnutrition is the number two secondary diagnosis in cancer patients. And a third of all cancer deaths are, the co are caused by severe malnutrition. And yet the evidence also showed that when nutritional issues are addressed, clinical and quality of life outcomes improve, mortality and morbidity rates improve, and, oh, by the way, healthcare spending is reduced. So with that, I said, there is a there there, and I started Saver Health. And it sounds like there's so many obvious holes in what's going on right now in terms of cancer treatment, based on those stats that you just shared, mm -hmm. Susan. And Stryker, I know you've spent uh, the last several decades in the healthcare technology and innovation industry or innovation in that industry in healthcare. Why do you think that these things haven't been addressed in the past? You know, I think there's uh, increased focus on what's now being considered patient-centric approaches. And many of the pharmaceutical companies are taking the approach of beyond the pill. So if you think about focusing more on the patient and less focus on the drug by itself and a more holistic approach, it really, it's, it's not as if it hasn't been done before. I think it's been uh, under-resourced before and the focus hasn't been what it is now. And I think it'll be companies such as Saver that will raise the level of awareness. The under-resourced part is that clinicians have very long days and it's very, very hard to carve out time for nutritional uh, education. Frequently, their staffs are overwhelmed and not well-trained clinically in uh, the dietary needs of an oncology patient. So that's probably what led to Eric's situation when he was told that he could eat anything he wanted. Nutrition really didn't make a difference when it makes a huge difference. And I think what's also becoming more obvious is with the proliferation of drugs and the interest in precision medicine, there's a growing recognition now uh, through growing evidence around nutrition that malnourished patients have more drug toxicity, lower treatment adherence, and are literally dropping out of therapy. So I, I would say the creative collision here is the recognition on the part of pharmaceutical companies. They can do so much more. It's good for them. It's good for the patient. And it's also a case of a growing body of evidence to support the role of nutrition as medicine. And again, accolades to Susan for doing the research to really build the foundation that, that SAVER now stands on. What's been the hardest part, Susan, breaking into this industry where um, it sounds like the paradigm hasn't necessarily been uh, patient-centric treatment mm -hmm. uh, in the past? So I think the hardest thing for me was figuring out what's the best way to meet and help the most amount of patients. And so understanding that the, the power structure in the medical system is the doctors at the top, they're the most um, well-respected, listened-to person in the, in the value chain, and yet they're the ones that have the least amount of uh, training around nutrition. Mm. Additionally, they are very, very busy in their day-to-day -day, day -day work, you know, giving chemotherapy or radiation or surgery. And so it was finding that, um, that it was the nurses that were the most important people. Mm. To They're the ones on the front lines. They're managing and dealing with the nutritional issues and 
they're looking for a solution. So it was finding what is that point in the in the healthcare delivery system that will get us to the patients, that referral source, and it, it, it it's the nurses. How did you how did you discover that and come up on that? Because I I know all of us as entrepreneurs are probably thinking through that like who's the key decision maker and how do I identify where that is in the chain? Right. Um, it was a combination of, of research and then putting that research to test. And so we, t- we tested a number of different um, uh, things along the way to, to identify the, most, the, the best referral source. And we went to an oncology nursing meeting and thereafter found that we were getting all these phone calls from patients and we said how did you how did you find us well we found you you know not through the google ads that we were doing but because this nurse saw you at a an oncology nursing society meeting uh, going back to your experience in uh, i banking mm-hmm. is there something that you learned there in watching all of these trends with various entrepreneurs from big enterprise companies to startups that was a real aha for you in terms of like this one or two key things is the real indicator of success, or is it very dependent per business on you know what those abilities are? Yeah, I mean, you know, there are a lot of determinants of success. There are basic things like blocking and tackling things like you know working hard and working smart. But I think one of the most important things that a lot of entrepreneurs don't know or understand is um, perseverance and riding the roller coaster. And that is you wake up one day and you go into the office and you're having the best day possible. And at noon, you get a phone call and you say, oh my gosh, I'm out of business. (laughs) And so it's the perseverance to kind of stick through those ups and downs. That I think is one of the most important things that determines success is the ability to know, well, it's the ability to ride the wave up and down and get through it and not lose your mind. Um, but the other piece of it is, I think, also knowing when to stop, knowing, knowing, knowing when you actually are seeing the end, mm-hmm. you know, and failing fast. So uh, if you've read anything that Eric Ries has written, um, he talks about the minimum viable product and the lean startup, and it's kind of iterating, not holding on to those sacred cows, that one thing that you want, it's being flexible. Yep. Just as a case in point, so Saber Health actually started out as a direct-to-consumer business, meal delivery business, and we built an algorithm that um, defined the recommendations for the meals that were delivered. And what we learned is that patients are really motivated to get off of meal delivery and to take care of themselves. Psychologically, they judge whether or not they're beating cancer or cancer's beating them by whether or not they take care of themselves. At the same time, so we found that recipes were really important. At the same time, we started getting interest from pharmaceutical companies, and they were interested in the recipes, and the recipes and the content we created were uh, highly engaged with. So all of a sudden, we learned that there's another piece of our business that's more important. So it's it's also responding to the market data that you're getting. I know I'm giving you a lot here. No, but... this, this, is re- this is really helpful because it gives me insight into how you're thinking through things. I think from an exercise standpoint, understanding your thought process helps me better think through how I'm thinking through my own business decisions. Um, and, and I'm curious, Stryker, with all the businesses you've been involved with, how have you learned to ride the wave? Uh, did you always know how to ride the wave or 
did you have some early surf lessons? Well, first of all, I think this is a team sport, and it's not about one person riding the wave. I think that uh, it's very, very sensible uh, for an entrepreneur to think about building a team and doing that in a very thoughtful fashion. And it's a hackneyed expression, but I think there's a lot of truth to it that you should be hiring people that are much smarter than you are and can do things that you can't do. It's easy for me. And if you <laughs> if you build that kind of team, there'll be the ups and the downs, but there'll be there'll be a certain hybrid vigor that you've created there and a confidence around the team that I think um, creates a, a certain level of confidence that might otherwise not be there if, if you're doing this on your own. But I think that behind all of this, something that Susan said that I think is really important is she's been both strategic and opportunistic. She knows the difference between the two, but has taken advantage of both. And I think underlying much of this is that she has demonstrated to me she's a fantastic listener. And I think successful entrepreneurs listen and they seek to understand and they're never satisfied with completing market research. Every day is another opportunity to satisfy more and more market research. So my, my thought as, as an entrepreneur and what I've told other young, young entrepreneurs is you have to listen, you have to learn, you have to seek to understand. And that's one element. Perhaps the most important element is to build that team and create corporate culture. It requires leadership. You're going to make some mistakes. But by and large, it is a team sport that the leader has to uh, build around. And that's what generally is the start of a very successful company. Well, so I, I really appreciate that, Stryker. And I, I appreciate all of the advice and the advisorship that you've given to the companies in the powder keg community. You know, we've, uh, we've, I think all of our interactions so far up till now have been at powder keg pitch nights. And I've just uh, been in awe of some of the feedback that you've given, just like to the point, very direct, but also very compassionate. Um, and I've tried to kind of read between the lines of your LinkedIn profile, but I wanted to kind of uh, use this opportunity to, to get your story of how you got into entrepreneurship in the first place. It was it something that always was in your DNA and, and was something that you learned from family and friends around you, or is it something you stumbled across later in life? I, I don't think it was consciously becoming an entrepreneur when I graduated from college, now dating myself. No one used that term. Uh, it was more one of always having some creative expression that I was interested in. And at a very young age, I was what many would consider an entrepreneur, but I thought that I was following various dreams I had and expressing certain creative uh, interests and, and talents. And uh, one thing led to another. I think as we mature and we enter into the business world, we see things through a different lens. And certainly it was well after graduation that I began to build companies and they were much different. There's a Socratic process to doing it that I very early learned learned about and developed my own style. But I, I think as I look back, I've been an entrepreneur since uh, before my teen years. What was one of your earliest memories of one of your creative endeavors? Be careful, I might ask you to demonstrate. Where, where I grew up, it was a town of 600 <laughs> up by the Oregon border in Northern California, and it was all logging and, and agriculture. 
And there were two uh, jobs that no one wanted that I uh, identified as being opportunities and, and, uh, and innovated in the process. One was I worked on a Angus ranch and irrigated uh, 250 acres of corn, sorghum for silage, alfalfa fields. And uh, it was a very, very early opportunity to see what a startup might be, because if you think about seed being put in the ground and if it's not being cared for properly, you're not going to have a crop to harvest. And there are many related issues there, but water is uh, one of the, the, the key ingredients, and it was my responsibility to place the water in the right place at the right time. I prided myself in doing 12-hour sets, so it was generally I started at 4.30 in the morning and then again at 4.30 uh, in the afternoon. So uh, when I left to go to college, they went to wheel lines and water winches because they couldn't find anybody to move the irrigation pipe, which at the time I was getting a nickel a pipe for. Oh my the, gosh. Second, the second thing was that the U.S. Forest Service wanted to reforest a lot of the areas that have been, been clear-cut by, by the logging industry, and they continue to raise prices that they pay for pine cones. And I came up with a system to harvest green pine cones. The Forest Service would cut them in half to assess the number of seeds, and I was paid on the basis of seed count. And not only did I uh, develop ways to harvest the pine cones without harming the trees. I also found a way to identify the pine cones with the highest seed count, so I was paid the most. So my start is not in healthcare; it's in irrigating <laughs> cattle ranches and harvesting green pine cones in Northern California. That's awesome. the The pine cone has fallen far from the tree in terms of industry, but uh... green pine cones are another way to start things. I love hearing the backstory of entrepreneurs because. It gives you a real sense of their flavor of how they tend to operate in the business that they're operating now. Susan, the way that you operate Saver Health and the, the discipline and the research required, particularly in your industry, you've, you had tons of that experience in iBanking before even getting into Saver Health. And, and I, think, I think that's really interesting to me and something that I could probably do a better job of. Um, when you do your research, are, are there things that you've learned to do that benefited in the long run? Like in, in terms of your research, where do you start? That can be overwhelming in and of itself. You know, do you talk to customers first or do you go to the internet first? Do you look at research journals first? Right. So it depends on what, what you're looking for. So if you're, so in the case of medical research, it's pretty straightforward. I go to PubMed and search search specific topics. Sure. But as it relates to building a business, I think a lot about Michael Porter and Porter analysis and looking at the four forces. And and it is. It's talking to... Can you, um, can you tell us what those four forces so are? So I don't remember all four of them, but um, <laughs> but it's... Sorry. No, those no worries. That I, used to I, know I don't about. either. And, and that was more <laughs> recent for me probably than it was for you that I, I it's looking, read Porter, Michael Porter's article. Right. So it's, it's you know, it's, it's the barriers, to entry, barriers to entry, competition, suppliers, and I'm missing one. So if I think about my industry, I interviewed potent people that are potential referral sources. I interviewed my um, customers. I interviewed and looked at who was the competition. I mean, that was a really interesting analysis. Who's the competition today? What is the competition going to be in the future? 
what are the barriers to entry? How do you create a business that has barriers to entry? I mean, that was something that was really interesting to think about. Um, and then, you know, just supply chain. How do you, in, in, if you think about the fact that we started out in meal delivery, so I thought a lot about logistics and, and, and um, supply chain and should I create my own kitchen? And I actually, this is great. I went to the, I live in New York City, so I went to the Bronx and Queens and looked at these industrial kitchens, and there was a point in time in my research that I thought, I'm going to have, I'm going to do this food delivery thing myself. I'm going to wear one of those nets, and I'm going to hire people to do that, and I'm going to figure this. Okay, well, long story short, or short story even shorter, I realized really quickly that was not my core competency. I was a healthcare person. How did you learn that? Um, it took me about two seconds going into these kitchens. And I love, and the funny thing is, is I actually love to cook. Uh-huh. Um, but this was, this was, it was very clear that that's not something I would love to do. And that was not something that I would be good. I mean, I didn't want to think about what's the right size of packaging. I mean, I, and I did all the research on packaging and all of that. But this, you know, that's not what I want to do. What I care about is patience. What I care about is um, is bringing the right solution to them and thinking through the strategy of that and figuring out how to do it. So we actually outsourced the culinary production from day one. But but to Susan's credit, I must add that I've seen the cookbook that she's authored. Yeah. <laughs> and while she didn't fulfill her dream of having an industrial kitchen, she has a tome of a cookbook oh, that wow. is... Uh, Quite, quite impressive, and I would encourage you to mention that if you would. Okay, yeah. So, as I said, so I love to cook, but I didn't want to industri- do, do cooking industrially. You know, to the point back earlier about patients really wanting recipes and this, this element of control over their disease, that in combination with the fact that I actually really do love to cook and, and my fun on the weekend, I mean, we kind of laugh about this, but my fun on Friday and Saturday night is cooking for 15 or 20 people. And so... I teamed up with Jessica Ayanata, our COO. She's an oncology credentialed registered dietitian, and we created a cookbook of 150 recipes designed around the unique side effects and nutritional needs of cancer patients. And that was a really fun project, um, something something that um, was not only my vocation but my avocation. I, I'm going to definitely get a copy. I'll send you one. I'm not going to promise I'm going to execute on the recipes, but maybe maybe my girlfriend can help me out and we'll, uh, we'll send you some Instagram photos I'll, be, I'll or send you the easy ones. All right, cool. <laughs> deal, deal. I, I love to cook too, but I'm, I'm no expert by any means. So recipes. I always need recipes. I, I love that you shared that, Susan, because it, it gives some insight into your ability to move and adapt and also recognizing yourself like what you can be best in the world at and I I think that's something that I'm still learning how to do and Stryker I'm sure you've seen entrepreneurs who are not doing the things that uh, they're best in the world at doing at first as you mentored more entrepreneurs as you've been an entrepreneur yourself how what what kind of disciplines um, have you seen to be really effective for entrepreneurs to evolve as operators as leaders as executors? Well, first of all, I think there has to be clear vision statement, vision statement, and guiding principles to at least provide some moral compass, if you will, for the company. Absent that, I think it's hard to bring people in and have everybody embracing what it is that you're trying to create, which which is far less about product and service and more one about this is how we will conduct ourselves. It's, it's a code of conduct with 
an orientation towards what is intended to be a laudable goal. Doing good, doing well by doing good is, is, is the phraseology that's most often used there. So what I encourage entrepreneurs to think about is describe your business. And it's not necessarily going to look day one what it'll look like five years down the road. Think about this longitudinally in an evolutionary kind of way, three years, five years, whatever it may be. But I think there's always this tendency to be unrealistic in estimates as to how long things will take, how much they'll cost, and so on and so forth. So I like to see someone express their business in terms of a descriptor over a roadmap or a timeline. And then what I like to do is come back, if it's an early company, and talk about, okay, you can't do this by yourself. Show me your table of organization. I want to see the key people that are going to join the company, when they'll join the company, what you're looking for in those people, because they will have to evolve along with you as the leader. And I think that it's incumbent upon you, the leader, to not only think about growing yourself, but growing the, the team per se. So I really like to think about framing what this company is about in terms of integrity, ethics, then thinking about the longitudinal nature of how this will all unfold, and then think about the table of organization and what this will look like. And the final comment that I'll make, Matt, that I um, think is really important for entrepreneurs to think about uh, as a part of building a company, and that is to set aside some amount of equity at an early stage when it's very, very inexpensive and to put it into a vehicle that will become a foundation. The company does well and you have already established a means to give back from a financial uh, standpoint. So what I have encouraged uh, entrepreneurs to do is to, is to think about early on, not only think about how they're going to build the company and and build a team around them, but to have sustainability from the success of that company in whatever may be the altruistic objectives of the entrepreneur or that team. Actually, a recurring theme uh, in the podcast. Uh, and, and I'm really glad you brought that up, Stryker, because um, that's something that we have pledged uh, as a company. Um, there's actually a really great organization called Pledge 1% that makes it super simple. And we're by no means the leader in this at all. We were fortunate to have uh, Salesforce, who's a partner of ours at Powder Keg. Um, and they were one of the champions of Pledge 1%. Mm -hmm. um, and John Samorjai, who's uh, VP of, of acquisitions and, and uh, strategic acquisitions there, um, as well as Salesforce Ventures, uh, he, he talked uh, good length uh, in that episode about that as well. So I'm really glad you brought that up because um, I, I think that that is a really important thing and makes me feel really good about what we're doing and something that we could probably tie in more uh, intelligently and even more uh, intentfully into our vision statement and some of the other things that you discussed there in terms of attracting the right team members that also are kind of behind that that mission. One of the things I really want to make sure we we talk about just in, in a broader sense is healthcare 
in general as an industry and how it's currently being disrupted. I know both of you are spending most of your days uh, thinking about healthcare and innovation in the healthcare space. I have no experience working in these regulated industries like this, um, but I imagine it provides a decent amount of landmines and hurdles for entrepreneurs. What has been the hardest part, Susan, about your uh, startup doing it in an industry that is as highly regulated as healthcare? You know, I'm thinking about just the industry in general. Um, probably, so we've done a lot of work with pharmaceutical companies. And as you alluded to or mentioned, you know, they are highly, highly regulated. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, the way they do business is by definition fairly structured. I, don't, I hate using the word bureaucratic because it has such a negative connotation, but they, there are ways to do things internally. And the, the reason why there are ways to do things is because they have to, they have to adhere to what the FDA is telling them to do and, and things like that. So when we first started doing work with pharma companies, what we, what we very quickly learned is that we need to fit in with their process. And as a young startup company, you're nimble, you work quickly, and the timeline to get from point A to point B is fairly lengthy, number one. But within, you know, between point A and point B, there are a lot of hoops you have to jump through, a lot of boxes that you have to check. And I think what has been difficult, we've, we've figured out, we've managed through it, but, um, was, was to learn what those processes were, what were the risks that they were worried about, uh, what could we do to reduce, mitigate, manage those those risks and concerns? And then lastly, I've learned that we actually need to make some changes in um, in our team and in or our organization in order to best suit best meet their needs in a way that works within their system. And so we're actually right now in the process of of adding some people who can do some things for our team that will that will make us just a better partner for pharmaceutical companies. I, you know, I, I think doing something in an industry like healthcare is awesome because you have such huge impact. And I applaud any entrepreneur that's willing to overcome those hurdles. And, and any investor willing to invest in these types of companies, clearly Stryker, this has not been a deterrent. The fact that you, this is a regulated industry has not been a deterrent for investing in these companies. Why? Why have you chosen kind of healthcare as as a place? Although you do have experience in in pine cones and um, some some other areas like water irrigation, but why have you chosen healthcare at least for the last uh, several ventures? Well, it's been an area of great interest, and I think it's a rapidly evolving industry. And with the tech enabled dawning that's recently occurred, I think it will only accelerate and become more interesting. My perspective, Matt, is that the regulation is not in law and regulation as much as there being a regulator on healthcare companies, and it comes down to reimbursement. And I think that the challenge as an investor is understanding through an entrepreneur's eyes and then being able to back check it, what is the revenue model and what is it that causes you to believe that you are going to be able as a nascent company to fight through all the clutter to have someone pay you for your service or your product. And if you've ever watched uh, how people get a code, a CPT4 code, for reimbursement purposes, it can be very time consumptive, very expensive, and there's never any guarantee that either you get a code or that if you do get a code, that it's going to be adequate to have a gross margin that investors are looking for. 
And right now, I think anybody that doesn't view healthcare as a zero-sum game in terms of reimbursement is not looking at the at the economics. So, backing up your original challenge of Susan and me, and and I appreciate that on the one hand, it looks highly regulated when we're thinking about what's going on in Washington with ACA, Obamacare, and and new proposals that are obviously not getting very far down the path and are creating a lot of angst across uh, the entire nation. As an investor, I see that as having hidden opportunities in it. But at the end of the day, if there's not a way to make money, there's not a way to seek and secure investment. And so when I think about the confounding nature of NASCAR's new rules of fuel limitation and people calculating how they're going to make the last two miles because so many people that have led for 200 laps run out of gas two laps from the end. That's the challenge in healthcare: is how can you get a full load of gas and get to the finish line? And there are many companies that propose to do that, but when you scratch through the veneer, do not have a clear explanation as to the revenue model and why it's defensible, how it's sustainable, and how they're going to play on a field that they're limited dollars. Dollars are being passed back and forth. They're not new dollars being put in the system. Thank you for sharing that perspective, because that is a totally different uh, frame through which to look at regulation uh, as an opportunity as opposed to a hurdle. Really quick, because we only have a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure we have time to grab drinks after this. Um, I, I would love to hear a little bit, uh, first from you, Stryker, you're in the healthcare industry. Obviously, Nashville is a great place to be. That's where you've chosen uh, to live. That's where we've met the last couple of times. Um, what makes Nashville a great tech community? Well, first of all, I have to pitch a little bit of the Nashville history. First of all, the number one industry used to be evangelical publishing. And then, of course, there was the growth of country music. And then there was, from the mid-60s on, a proliferation of healthcare companies. But if you look at what's going on in Nashville now in terms of creativity, there was a publishing 14, Project 1440 Accelerator in the Entrepreneur Center. There have been several Project Healthcare's. And there's, uh, there's also been a project music with tremendous support in each sector from those who have gone before the entrepreneurs that are bringing forward in each area tech-enabled solutions for those. Uh, and now there's a growing interest in fintech uh, in Nashville. But I think the ecosystem there, particularly as it relates to investors, particularly angels, who bring a check and they also bring a great deal of knowledge that's transferable and that they want to help companies with, is just a, a terrific, terrific community in which to test concepts, test MVPs, and then recruit from a target-rich environment of very, very capable people who want to be the next successful healthcare entrepreneurs in Nashville. We have bigger adrenal glands than anywhere else in the nation when it comes to self-confidence in healthcare. It's a, it's a very vibrant community, and I think it has all the requisite ingredients for success in terms of intellectual capital, the investors that are there, and the fact that you can turn on every corner and seek guidance from talented uh, mid-level and higher executives in existing healthcare companies that want to pay it forward. It's it's a uh, it's a terrific place to do business. 
I'm glad I asked that question because it provided some pretty pretty cool context for Nashville. I, I love the energy down there right now uh, in tech and startups and everything going on from sports to music to healthcare, you name it. Very cool. Uh, and Susan, you've been in New York City since 85. So you've seen this entire tech industry bloom here. Yes. Uh, what's it like growing a tech startup in New York? So it's really, you know, it's really exciting. And, and as you and I were talking about yesterday, what I like about the tech environment in New York City is that there's, there's so many. There's fintech, you've got fashion tech, you've got health tech. Um, and, and New York is one of those places where it's all about what's your idea, how interesting, is it scalable, are you going to make money? It's such a merit, it's such a meritoc meritocratic sort of a place that I think, um, in, in certain other places, sometimes it's more about who you know. And, and of course, the reality of it is in any, in anything in the world, right? What, who you know sometimes is more important than what you know. But, but notwithstanding that point, New York is a meritocratic place. And so people are most concerned, most interested, most excited about, does this make sense? Is it a good idea? What are you going to do? Versus, I know XYZ partner at whatever firm. That doesn't, you know, if you have a great idea and it makes a lot of sense and it's going to make money, you're going to get it. You're going to get a meeting with that investor if you take the right approach getting in the door. I love that kind of culture here. And I love that there's great programs like Startup Health, which I know you're a part of. Yeah, absolutely. Here, here in New York. Uh, so I appreciate you sharing that perspective. I, I love a good meritocracy. And I'll, can I just add my little pitch on Nashville? Because I was so impressed yeah. with Nashville um, that I said to, to Stryker that I thought, this feels like Brooklyn. I mean, great food, great music, great beer, great tech companies. I mean, it's just a really vibrant community. And the only other place I felt that kind of energy in a low-key kind of cool way was in New York City in Brooklyn. And so um, kudos to what's going on down in Nashville as well. Um, I can't wait to get back. Me too. Me too. I'll, I'll be back in a couple of weeks, actually. I'm, I'm very much looking forward to it. But until then, uh, we, we've got a social date to get to. And I want to thank you guys so much for sharing your expertise, your story. I would love to have you guys back on again and uh, hopefully on the powder cake stage again real soon. Thank you. This is great fun. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for our interview with Susan Bratton and Stryker Warren, but it does not have to be the end of the conversation. You see, you can follow Saver Health and their story at Saver Health on Twitter, and that's at Saver underscore health on Twitter. Make sure you hit them up, tell them that you enjoyed their journey, maybe even check out some of their services. Susan has an amazing cookbook that you should absolutely check out. And for more stories on entrepreneurs, leaders, and top talent outside of Silicon Valley, make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. You can find us at powderkeg.com slash iTunes. You want to subscribe because we have some great guests coming up, so don't miss it. We've got a helpful companion website as well at powderkeg.com. You're going to find the show notes there along with links to the contact info we mentioned in the episode, as well as some other useful articles and interviews from the Powder Keg community. Thanks for listening, and hopefully you will be hearing from us very soon. Until then, I'll see you on Twitter. I'll see you on Instagram. I'll see you on Facebook. Thanks for following in our journey, and I'll talk to you next week.